0: back to the flip side galen clavio brian moritz back once again two weeks in a row brian we might actually be making
1: this like a trend i I, i'm a little i'm a little nervous because you know you know we haven't really uh been the most let's say consistent podcasters for a while but i think i think we've got our stuff back together you know there's a presidential primary coming there's a we got about a half foot of snow in upstate new york so we're ready to roll i mean this is prime podcasting season we have
0: two inches of snow here in Indiana and I am it's 10 degrees outside and I am just miserable right now this is the worst like yep. as uh, a friend of mine posted on on Facebook uh, my good friend Jeremy Gray I want to just read this in full cuz it really does capture you know not it's not so I understand fall is going to come you know it just it's it's happening but As he points out, for Midwesterners who claim fall is their favorite season because of that two-week period of time in mid-October where you pick out pumpkins, get family photos wearing jeans and comfy sweaters on a wooded trail, and do some interesting things with apples, I think it's important to remind you that you also have to buy October 25th to December 21st. I stand for spring. I couldn't agree more. It's it's all, and it's always in India. I don't know what it's like in upstate New York. Um it but it's always this moment in mid-november. way too early for anything untoward to be happening with the weather, where you walk outside and it's like blowing and drifting snow. And it's not even the fifteenth. like you're you're still a good two weeks from Thanksgiving. it um it really just makes me want to hide in a cave for the next
1: four months. I did see somebody uh, up here posted something similar like when you say you love fall you love September October which is our fall our prime fall session season up here and um, yeah November I mean it's always the funny thing where where up here at least like you can get snow anytime from like the middle of October through so I mean you're used to it but there's always this weird first freak out of it's November what is today November 12th and there and there's snow yeah, um, I mean, I'm, it's good that I get the first one out of the way kind of early. I, I, I think the only problem is I hurt my back over the weekend, so I couldn't rake my leaves, which was a good thing is I didn't have to rake my leaves. But now they're under six inches of snow in my backyard. So I will. they're, they're, they're part of the lawn now.
0: I, that's the Now, so I did on Sunday, it was 61 degrees, which is what makes this even more infuriating because it went right. from 61 to 10 in a 36-hour <laughs> stretch. But I actually did go out and mow my lawn and the leaves into oh, the you lawn. you do that. Yeah. Smart move. Yeah. You know, it's it's like natural fertilizer, I guess. That's what I mm-hmm. – I read that on the internet somewhere. And <laughs> and so I did that right before all of the nasty stuff got here. So I do – Smart move. F- I at least did something good with my yard after like four years of just complete failure. Uh, so <laughs> – Anyway, so uh, we got some things to talk about today. We're going to rant about autocorrect. We're going to talk a little bit about the launching of new sports networks in 2019 and why is it a good thing, is it a bad thing, is it too late? We're going to talk about all that. But uh, we wanted to start off talking a little bit about news and social media, which is a topic that we talk about quite a bit, and I think it's particularly important given what you said at the beginning, we've got a presidential primary coming. How soon is that? When is when is the first presidential primary?
1: Sometime in January. So we're less than two months away from uh, the first one. Yeah. So it's coming up. And
0: yeah, January is not that far away. You're talking like less than two months away. And it it was interesting because reading this piece, I'm a big fan of Pew Research Center and, and their, uh, their social media and their journalism and media studies. And so the the title of the article is, "Americans are wary of the role social media sites play in delivering the news." And it's like, well, that's probably wise of them, finally, to be thinking that way. But right. you know looking at the the numbers, I think there's some interesting things to dive into. Uh, so the percentage of u s. adults who say social media companies have too much control over the mix of news that people see, sixty two percent said that they have too much control. Uh, as mm-hmm. opposed to 21 percent uh, saying they have about the right amount of control, and then the uh, the percentage of U.S. adults who say social media companies' role in what people see on their sites results in a worse mix of news is 55 percent, which I thought mm-hmm. it was a particularly interesting thing because I'm I'm always I'm curious about the way that people view social media because in you know social media from the standpoint of agency on the part of the audience was always advertised as being a place where you could be an active consumer of news. You could curate your own news feed. And yet just those two items from the survey really have put us back into the 1990s where I'm a passive consumer of news and just like whatever the the editors decide I'm going to see. And I guess in this case, whatever the algorithm decides I'm going to see is what I'm going to see.
1: Mm-hmm. I, it, it is interesting, and I think that that's a really good way of thinking it. Um, the algorithm becomes so powerful, and um, I think that people – I think it's interesting because, like you said, social media does did promise a more active uh, participancy in, in the audience. But I do wonder, A, how many people – particularly maybe facebook users maybe older facebook users recognize that that agency and took it um you know it might just be that they're passive consumers of a medium that's meant to be active as opposed because that's what the model they're used to they're used to kind of seeing what's presented and um i do think the algorithm is a big 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 part of this and, and you know the algorithm the the, the big spooky algorithm um speaking but just to dive in yeah. on the algorithm did you see this whole
0: controversy that erupted the last couple of days about the apple card
1: yes about how uh men are getting like five or six times the amount of uh or 20 times the amount of credit uh that their wives who have better credit scores and better jobs are the same jobs are getting because of the algorithm spits it out right that's uh, hysterical it well
0: it's it's hysterical in in a sense that Apple of all companies, which just goes out of its way to be this like woke uh, you know mm-hmm. enlightened liberal company, there you know it went the so there was this whole Twitter thread where this gentleman was was going after Apple customer service because they they couldn't help. And they basically said, "Well, we can't really do anything about it because it's what the algorithm says. And it's like, well, th- the idea that the algorithm is this untouchable almost godlike figure among these companies is it's just it's just a tremendous cop out and i feel this way yep, about i mean absolutely. Hey, when you talk about news this idea that the algorithm can't be like it's just oh this is computer learning and this is just what the computer's tell us no the, like this was programmed this was right. something the, there were there were items put into this algorithm <laughs> that caused it to act this way the algorithm didn't invent itself and right. that's it's interesting because when we talk about you know the the responsibility of media companies, and I th- and honestly, I think this isn't just a social media issue. When he's, this is also an issue that affects the the way that news is selected uh, for for coverage by regular news organizations on their own websites and what they decide to link. I mean, a lot of it is is based on this idea of what we think that the computers what the computers think that the audience wants to see. It's mm it is it is an abdication of responsibility and it's almost worse than that because it's it's presented in a way that's supposed to be intellectually unassailable like well this was the algorithm like we're it's not we're not as smart as it is and it's like well you designed the damn thing so that's right. kind of a stupid
1: thing to say no absolutely you know th- this idea that you know computers don't program themselves the algorithm is specifically designed to do something and you're right it is it is kind of a, an interesting passive Uh, abdication of responsibility because we designed this thing and then the the machine tells us what we want. And it kind of relates to something I've written about a lot and thought about a lot, which is the growth of and the importance of metrics in news judgment and, and what metrics matter and using metrics as a news value. And all of a sudden, those two things get related when you get to an idea where um, you're looking for a spec- you know you're looking for a specific metric and that's how you measure success of a story. That's how you measure success of a company of a news organization, whatever. and now and now all of a sudden those, those two you, you look to that number for success rather than something else. And when you know I know it's frustrating for for publishers to feel like especially on Facebook like you can't tell, you can't game the algorithm like right. you can't you can't figure out, what you know, you go one way, and then Facebook changes, and, and then the algorithm is tweaked. Or it's like it's almost like playing whack a mole. It's just a tired cliche, but I think it's accurate. But getting back to this, but getting back to the to the Pew study, I, I do think it's interesting how um, a majority of Americans, a majority of of, of respondents to the to, to the research, say that the social media companies have too much control and too much power. I think that's really important, and. And really fascinating, and looking at these numbers a little bit, Republicans or lean Republicans think social media have too much control. It's 75% and Republican lean Republicans say it's a worse mix of news, which is absolutely the opposite of what I would have, excuse me, what I would have assumed. I would have thought that Democrats and people who lean Democratic, you know, tending to be more progressive, a little more woke, to use your word there, would be, are a little tend to be a little bit more anti-Facebook these days and a little bit more attuned to the. Trump using fake news, I and mean, when we talk about you know, Repu- you know the the problems with Facebook and actual fake news, not the weaponized term, like it's almost always a pro-Trump or a pro pro Republican story or those type of memes. So it's interesting to see that Republicans feel still feel that social media has too much control, which would indicate to me that they think that these sites are presenting too much liberal news, which is fascinating to me. Yeah, no, and actually, if you go down the list a
0: little bit, that that is something that's drawn out. Uh, a bit more in some of the 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 numbers where the when you look at the the numbers breakdown down from Republican to Democrat, you know twenty six percent of Republicans or people that lean Republican say the posts about news they see on social media are generally very liberal. and something like like sixty two percent say it's liberal or very liberal. I, I think right. so I have th- i have, I have competing theories on this, and I don't know which one is accurate. I think a. People who lean Republican on social media, when they're asked this question, they're actually thinking more about Twitter and the way that Twitter spreads news than they are Facebook. And on Twitter, you do see, I would say, more mainstream publications and mainstream publications, even relatively down the middle Historically, mainstream publications like, say, The Atlantic, have been very heavily anti-Trump and anti-Trump administration. I think for for you know logical reasons, given the 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 level of, of potential impropriety in the in the uh, in in the particular uh, administration that you have, and that becomes liberal media in the eyes of mm-hmm. those people, even if it might not necessarily be liberal. But the idea that uh, oh, this story is against my team in politics, that now belongs to the other side. The other thing I, I think might be factoring in here is this idea of curation on the part of the consumer. And I think this is probably more of a Facebook thing where it feels like when I'm, when I'm observing people on Facebook, I, I, you, you'll always get people who are friends with other people who have different political views. That's just kind of a natural aspect of, of culture. And yet I've seen more people who I would say lean Democrat or lean liberal just removing their Republican mm-hmm. friends out of their Facebook feeds. Like, I, I, I don't want you arguing on my page. I don't want to see you know the stories that you're posting. So I'm just going to either unfriend you or I'm going to unfollow you. I don't know necessarily that you're getting as many Republicans doing that, largely because they're older and they may not know how those functions work. On Facebook, right? And or they like or they like
1: the fight, or they or, the, or like they the- or they
0: like the fight. Yes, that's and and I think either of those could be potentially true. And so, but and again, this is where I get really interested in this. Like, this is all self curation. Like, there's a there's a whole section down in this report where it says, okay, eight in ten people say social media companies treat some news organizations differently than others. Eighty-two mm-hmm. percent, like eight out of ten, think that. And then the types of social of of news sites that they say social media companies prefer are 88% say the type that produce attention grabbing articles, 84% that have a lot of social media followers. Now, those two right. things, attention grabbing articles and th- p- and sites that have followers. Like that's that's the way that social media works from a platform perspective. The idea that right. here's here's an article that's going to get a lot of attention, that's what spreads it through social media. It's not I mean, I think it's easy to point the finger at social media companies like Facebook and say, you know, that's clickbait. Well, clickbait is called clickbait because it causes people to click. And those clicks cause it to pop up in other people's feeds, which causes them to click. I mean, it's, it's not rocket science here.
1: And well, but it, but it also gets into like, like it's, the, it's the cycle of, you know, the, these produce, uh, the, that produce attention grabbing articles and have a so, lot of social media followers. Well, that's also what the algorithm is like. That's what social sure. media is. But that's also what the algorithm. So it, it feeds. It's one of those things that's like the chicken and the egg of feeding into each other. Scrolling down in the study, I'm fascinated. So they have so, uh, another graph of social media as, as pathways to news. And I mean, this—it's it, a percentage of U.S. adults who use the site and get news on the site. Um, I mean, this is—it's a staggering, staggering thing. We'll put this whole thing in the show notes for this episode. Um, but 50, you know, seventy-one percent of Americans, U.S. adults, use Facebook. Fifty-two percent get news on the site. Um, which, again, might just be how it's presented to them, you know, right. news is presented to them. Um, in Twitter, for you know, this is, a uh, uh, ring a bell on this one because we talk about this all the time. Only 23% of U.S. adults use Twitter. 17% get uh, news on there. So a huge percentage of Twitter users are there for news. I'm stunned 28% of U.S. adults get news on YouTube. I did not expect it to be that high. Yeah, um, YouTube's, YouTube's,
0: right, it's, it's. It's so big. I'm actually surprised the number that's is the not thing, live, yeah. you know
1: I mean that's true just because it's so big and, yeah. and, and, and has so much. Um, but I mean looking at this it's so interesting like 14 percent of people get US adults get news on Instagram. and I really just I, given you know the, the populations that we teach, given the fact that we teach college students, I just feel like you know Instagram is such an interesting app going forward because you know it's owned by Facebook, so it's eaten into the Snapchat use of it a lot, but I just feel like the numbers are there in, in an interesting way. And I feel like there's a, there generationally, I think that there's a lot of potential there for social media. Like it, it doesn't necessarily fit itself into news the way well, Twitter does. Twitter is designed for news in a lot of ways. And Facebook is just kind of like a a big blob of everything. Um, but I think it's there, there's potential there for Instagram for, to, for somebody to, uh, to really make some interesting news decisions there.
0: Yeah, well, and it's interesting because we just launched a daily newscast, uh, video newscast here at Indiana, and our primary platform for the newscast is Instagram. Like that's oh, nice. where, that's where it goes. It's a five-minute newscast that we do every day, and the idea is let's put it on the Inst- on the IGTV function of the Instagram feed and. I, to me, it makes the most sense because hey, you're going to get some people that will watch on Facebook certainly. But why put it on Twitter? Like no one no one in right. the population of students is really looking at Twitter and saying, I need to be looking at my news there. You'd rather have it right. on YouTube and Instagram. So that's going to be interesting moving forward because I think from the standpoint of, as you mentioned, the platforms and the way the platforms are changing and mutating. I just wrote a book on this. So that's why I've been thinking <laughs> about this a lot um the idea that it's going to congregate around portable mediums for, and that are that work well on phones as opposed to facebook which even though it's got an app that's relatively good it's still at its heart a pc based Social media. Thing. Or yeah. 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 Uh, I, I think that's going to be a big distinguishing difference in terms of how news gets disseminated. And I think in this upcoming election cycle, with as many people that have jumped off of Facebook, with as many people that don't use Twitter, there's going to be tremendous disconnects between what media people and professors think is the big story, because that's going to be what's talked about on Twitter, and what the actual right. big story is. And I don't know where that big story is going to get talked about because like, old people are watching television. And young people are watching Snapchat and Instagram. It's going to be really fascinating. Anyway, it is. Yeah. Let's uh, let's let's move on. Second topic here. Um, I wanted to talk. Have you? I, I I didn't mention this to you in the in the show open. So if I'm dropping something on you, you haven't seen. We'll just save it for next time. But did you read this controversial piece? This editorial? Or, oh, the Northwestern thing. The Northwestern thing.
1: Oh. Oh. Um. We may have to save it because I have lots of thoughts. I can I can give you a teaser if you like, or
0: I can. Let's just get it because I'm still. I, I guess, so. I read this for those who haven't mm-hmm. seen it. There was a an editorial that came out yesterday from the 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 Daily whatever it's called, um, the, the whatever whatever Medill Northwestern, is, Northwestern. the Daily whatever. Northwestern, yeah, the Daily Wildcat, uh, and it it was very strange, shall we say, because. It was basically a a piece that I mean, I'm just gonna kind of read the the opening here, addressing the daily's coverage of Sessions protests. And it's this thing where they uh the, the editorial staff writes about the way that they covered the appearance of Jeff Sessions, the former attorney general on Northwestern's campus at a College Republicans event, and there were protesters. And the whole thing takes this very odd tone. It's a very conciliatory tone. And it's almost as if there's apologies being made for what most people trained in journalism would view as normal journalistic practices, like not -hmm. not just things that aren't abnormal, but things that you would never apologize for. Uh, And they've been getting killed on social media, particularly on Twitter about it. There've been a lot of breathless think pieces already written about this. I'm not a hundred percent certain that this wasn't written as
1: a satire. Uh, I, I think that there's, there's a possibility. No, it wasn't. I saw the, uh, the editor in chief had a Twitter thread about it. Kind okay. of, not, not, not so much, um, kind of defending it, but kind of contextualizing it a little bit. So it's not satire. Okay.
0: So not satire. So I, 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 uh, I was wrong on that. Um, but, give me your taster on this because I'm, I'm, right. I'm still, I'm, I'm just, I'm fascinated you in particular, what you think of this particular story.
1: So I, so I have a lot of thoughts and they are evolving kind of as I contextualize it. Um, I do think some of the things that they apologized for, they didn't need to apologize for. So some of the things included publishing, uh, group, basically group shots, like, like photos of the public protest where you could see people's faces. Um, they contacted, uh, People by phone and text through the uh, numbers that were available on the university directory. So they got publicly available numbers, and they reached out to people. Say, if you're attending the protest, can I inter- can-, can I interview you? Um, so my 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 it's kind of, it's a complicated thing because I I think they were wrong, but that the I, 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 I think that they made made a mistake. But I can also understanding and reading the editorial, I kind of get where they're coming from in that. They're trying, they're, they're, they're you talked about, they're serving their community or they're, they're involved with their community. Um, and so thinking of best ways to do that, I do think that my, my main ire is against the Maggie Habermans and the, the elite journalists who spent last night dunking on them and ripping them. Um, because as I, as I tweeted out, you know, college is a place where you make mistakes, especially college journalism. And let's say you you take this this editorial as a mistake that they should not have to apologize apologize for it. Well, okay, then then that then this is the, the classic an actual honest to god teachable moment where you have a conversation or you listen to them and figure it out and not spend spend it dunking on them. I do think the fact that it was Northwestern led to a lot of the dunking on, right? Because like the same thing if it like happened at Mizzou or Syracuse or something like that, you get you're going to have the the pearl clutching of the elite and you're going to have the people like us who are not from the elite air quote schools wanting to dunk on
0: them. Well, and I think also there's a level of elitism that many of these so-called elite journalism schools carry themselves with that it's right. like, "Oh, well, you know, the this person is Medill made or or, you know, or whatever." And it there is a certain level of when you when you see something like this that seems to run like directly counter to the sorts of journalistic principles that that many people in the in the media you know, feel are under assault, and feel like people shouldn't be taking for granted. I, I do think that that feeds into it, like you said. I guess the th- the biggest thing I took away, I'm with you in that. You know, I I think that this was a probably a an idea that took hold in the editorial office of the newspaper that went to an unfortunate place. And it was probably born out of what you said, uh, an, an idea that, well, we need to be serving the students here. And are we doing the wrong thing by acting in this particular way? I guess my concern from an organizational and maybe even from a mentality perspective is this idea that frankly, we see a lot on Twitter and social media, where it's the idea that the press has to be an ally of particular groups of people. And if it's not, it's the enemy. It's actually actively supporting the forces of of evil in the eyes of those groups. And I think that that's just a very dangerous place to be philosophically if you are going to go into journalism. I think there's plenty of people that where it's perfectly fine for you to go into advocacy-based communication. I I think that that's going to frankly be – Increasingly, how communication is done in the social media age, because ultimately everybody's waging war in this huge forum of public opinion that extends, you know, not just across the country but across you know, international borders as well. But mm-hmm. but I think if you're going to be invested as a um, as an independent source of news and information, it's there. There has to be some level of 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 refereeing of the idea that, okay, we're going to demonstrate to people what's happening. We're going to provide information. Refereeing was the wrong word there. But at the very least, it's like there's a neutrality involved. That's what kind of what I meant by that. Not like deciding right, right from wrong, but almost not deciding right from wrong and saying, well, there are, there are public spaces, there are private spaces, and if we're operating in the public space, we have a duty to at least – provide that information to everybody out there because there are people that are consuming this expecting it to be neutral as opposed to right. consuming it and expecting it to be taking into account um, particular wants and desires of individual groups. And, and right. that's, that's, I guess, that's the one thing where, yes, you're right, it's a teachable moment. I do wonder if it's perhaps teachable to to groups, like to to people who are coming up through journalism who have been, um, I guess, conditioned by other societal or cultural impulses to think that you have to be providing special accommodations to groups of people as part of your job?
1: Well, and the last thing I'll get on this, because I know we're running long on this, but I think that um, I I, I do agree with you. I, I think that you know, reading the editorial and reading the guy's Twitter thread, the, the editor in chief's Twitter thread. You know, agree or disagree. I think what what will impress me was that there was thought put into this. This wasn't just apologizing because people got mad and apologizing for journalists. There was a philosophy. There was discussion about this. And again, you can you can disagree with that. I think maybe some of the word choosing word choices in the uh, in the editorial. I think were more problematic. Then the attitudes behind it, like the invasion of privacy, like I'm teaching privacy law right now. So that's like a very specific thing that I don't think is sent. I will say, and the last thing on this would be that I think a lot of our collective journalism ideals, journalism norms are really born out of a sense of privilege, a sense of of, of, elite, a sense of not – and not always journalists and this goes we we, you can tie it into sports we've not always been super concerned with our sources and the people we interview we have not like with what even positive or neutral coverage what it means what it's like we don't often consider them they're like the means to an end you're three sources for a story and you kind of hit and run out of that and I think that if this is a byproduct of, well, let's take a little more care and think through what the people who are going to read this and who are involved in it and how it's going to affect them. Again, even if if maybe they went a little too far on it, you know, I, I, I like that mindset. I like that attitude rather than just damn the torpedoes, get the story, screw what people are thinking, their number's public, I can contact them whenever they want. I'm the media, ha, 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 ha. Um, Sorry, I went off there a little bit, but I do <laughs> think, but again, it was that, it was, it was that, you know, I, like I said, there's a mindset behind it. There's a philosophy behind it. Whether you agree with it or not, I'm, I'm happy to see that this is a conversation that maybe we start having. And I think the danger is, especially because it's a Twitter thing, is that it becomes, you know, elite media dunking on them. And then people like us responding to the elite media and the conversation that we want to have and maybe should have doesn't happen because it's all that stuff. So.
0: Perhaps I, you know we'll uh, maybe we'll save those larger conversations for a later time. I did think it was yep. worth mentioning because it's it's an interesting front that's opening up in the concept of journalism in the public space, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that it's I, I look at it and I say to myself, well, the there's there's something afoot here, and it's an interesting thing, but there's some ramifications as I think we've seen with a lot of of. Suggested cultural change over the last decade, decade and a half within American society especially where there are ramifications that are probably not fully thought through at this point. And Mm -hmm. the the process of thinking them through is almost verboten because it supposedly infringes upon the same uh, sorts of sensitivities that uh, are being touched upon in the editorial. But we'll talk about that at a later time. So uh, let's – Chat about um something that has nothing to do with this. there was another topic I wanted to get to, which was uh, the ACC network. This was actually a question that I got from one of my students here, uh, Sam Niederman, who asked, you know, with the launching of the the ACC network, like you know, is it going to have the same level of success, the same like you know, gradual broadening of of mission and scope, like the Big Ten Network and the SEC Network have. And so, for those who haven't been following, the ACC has you know they've partnered with ESPN. They've launched this ACC Network as an own as their own independent channel this year, and it's it's you know still not available on my cable package. I don't know. Do you get the ACC Network where you're at?
1: I don't have cable, so no. Oh, well, there you go.
0: Well, well, actually, that actually uh, feeds right into what I was going to say on this, (laughs) which is I think that this might be uh, a a case of bad timing as far as ESPN and the ACC network are concerned because the era that we're in now is a very different era from when the Big 10 network launched, which was 2007, and, uh, and even when the SEC network launched. I mean, I think the cable channel for the SEC network didn't launch until... Uh, I want to say like 2000 and and thir- four two it was 2014. It was five years ago. Uh, the branding had started on that a little bit earlier on, but um, you know, we're still we're talking about a five-year span of time with the SEC network, a 12-year span of time with the Big Ten network, and it it occurred to me as I was thinking about this that both of those networks have been able in that period of time, largely through cable television, to establish a brand. Uh, that mm-hmm. That is very closely aligned to their – the conferences that they are are connected with. And that has almost kind of dropped them directly into the broader sports media landscape. Uh, in in, a, in the same way that the NFL network is in the, the broader sports media landscape, MLB network is there. These are channels that we know. The ACC network now comes along at a time where you're continuing to see people not having cable like Mr. Moritz or – People living in places where it's not geographically noteworthy to have that particular network. And I just – I don't know if we're at a point where that sort of a network, that particular sort of thing, something connected to an athletic conference is going to really have the same sort of financial effect or the same sort of cultural Im- like betting in that we have seen with these other networks simply because – the means of people getting it and having it like as part of their daily consumption life of media, it's just not there anymore. Like the, the, no. as we talked about earlier, the the way that people consume media has changed so much just even in the last five years.
1: Right. No. And, and you know, how many, you know, is cable the growth industry that you want to be a part of, you know, probably you know, I, I, you want to laugh and say not, but you know, we're, we're recording this on the day where Disney plus uh, launched its streaming service. And so I do, you know, you do wonder as more streaming services come along, I was talking with a student about this last week, I do wonder if um, at some point cable, I don't want to say makes a comeback, but all of a sudden it's like, well, I'm not going to pay 50, you know, $75 for 18 different streaming services, I'll pay $75 for cable and get everything that I want. Well, it does seem like a little bit of weird timing, like you said, like a little bit of I don't say antiquated thinking, which is weird to think of 2007 as antiquated, but it does seem like, I don't know. It just seems to me like, like the other conferences had such, it, it, it seemed more natural. And this, this kind of seems like a me too, like let's, Oh, they did this. So I guess we have to do this. I mean, a, a thing with the ACC and I don't know, I don't. And, and given everything that's been happening with the NCAA, with the, um, with with this Memphis case and with the with with the we're going to start letting play, players get paid even though they're really not going to let players get paid but that's a whole other story you know you do wonder how much of this the 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 this, this almost feels like it could be the one the, the, the card on the house of cards that lets it that makes it tumble just because all of a sudden it's too much uh, I don't know it just it doesn't feel it, it doesn't feel well timed to this moment in in college sports or in media it just feels like an artifact of like you said of 2007, of 2010, of 2012, you know, before streaming became so big, before um, we we really started thinking about the money in college sports and, and divvying it up. I don't know; it, it, it seems awkward. I know Jim now hates it, so that's awesome. That's great. Um, yeah, I mean, so that's a, that's actually a point in its favor that yeah. Bayno hates it. 100%. Yeah, I'll, I'll it. Yeah, so I, I don't just, know. It, I, it,
0: I it, think it, the other problem is what is the ACC like? The, I mean. Well, but is it? Because, I mean, it is. But that's a very small geographical footprint. I mean, the right. the you know that's basically the states of Virginia and North Carolina, and that's about it. Like, I mean, let's
1: be honest. I think for a lot of people, the ACC is Duke, Carolina.
0: Sure, and and maybe maybe the, you could throw Virginia in there. You might be able to throw Virginia Tech. Yeah, but but by and large, it's a very it's a it's a conference that lacks a center from a cultural mm-hmm. perspective. And and I think what you have to say about the SEC or the Big Ten, there's really not a bad cultural fit. I mean, you could I, – I would make the argument that Rutgers is a bad cultural fit, but Rutgers would be a bad cultural fit anywhere. Yeah, fit no matter, yeah. Yeah. Um, but but – and Maryland really doesn't belong in the Big Ten, but Maryland is at least – they're at least interested enough in basketball that they make it worth the while of things. But, but the ACC, I mean, you've got Boston College – and Florida state in the same yeah. conference i can't think of of two more diametrically opposed big schools that are like in the same time zone it's it's right um it, so i i don't know Syracuse and Clemson that's another one where it's just like what yeah. what is like this is basically just a political marriage masquerading as a as a an athletic conference and that might make it easier to sell, uh, or it might make it more difficult. I'm not 100% certain how it's going to play out, but I do feel pretty confident that we're not going to see the ACC network hit the same heights that these other conferences have hit. Just because there's, yeah. it, it just feels like the time has passed. They were they were late.
1: The time has passed, and like you said, the Big e, the Big Ten, the SEC, they have history to those rivalries. You know, they may be newer conference names, but there's a tradition. There, there's more tradition on there. Like you said. With the ACC, you have the Carolina schools, you have Virginia, but you know, Syracuse is still a Big East school. You know, they're, and I think for a lot of people, even up here, um, you know, they, they they you know go nuts when Duke comes, they go nuts when Carolina comes. But you know, if you bring Georgetown to the dome, that's still the big game. That's still a big game, right. even though they're not in the same conference anymore. Same with UConn. So, uh, so you, without that kind of, you know, this is where in college sports, I think history and, and historical rivalries mean something because that's that connection to something. If I'm in Syracuse, am I going to get the ACC network to watch Clemson and Virginia Tech? Probably not. If, as opposed to if, you know, Indiana, you're going to watch, you know, Illinois and Michigan State. Yeah, you've got some skin in that game.
0: Let's finish up. Let's talk about autocorrect. Uh, Always so,
1: be aware of autocorrect. Okay. What, what
0: the hell is going on in my phone? Like, I, I just I, – I'm I'm a relatively good typer. I really am. I have big fingers. Mm-hmm. The The iPhone keyboard is is not laid out particularly well. But I feel like increasingly – and I would say I, for, it's an exponential increase from when I first started typing on non-mechanical keyboards to now. So, I don't mm-hmm. know. That's like a nine-year span of time, eight-year span of time. I feel like autocorrect has grown from – a helpful, occasionally obtrusive thing Mm -hmm. to a thing that has a life of its own that doesn't at all seem predictive. It's kind of like it's like when you get ads that pop up on Google and they're just, you know, it's like when you buy a mattress. And right. for forever and ever, Facebook now thinks that you want to buy mattresses. And it's like, no, right. I, you, you missed the point here. It's a um, one-time thing, yeah. But with autocorrect, it's like I'll – so one time I was making fun of uh, my wife's place of employment. She works at the Kelly School of Business. And and the Kelly School of Business here at IU, they're incredibly successful. They're like a, a top 10 public business school. and. You know, but they they do carry themselves with a, a bit of an aura of invincibility. And so one time I spelled Kelly with all caps. And now okay. even if I'm spelling a person's name, it will revert to that spelling. And, and Kelly has an extra E uh, in the in the business school thing. And it's just so frustrating. The same thing with IU. I accidentally mis miss like spelled it with a lowercase I and it corrects to that. And I know I've gone through the process of trying to fix. The auto dictionary, I've got you know all of these things that it doesn't seem to actually have any effect. And I realize autocorrect is there theoretically to help the audience, the, the user of the phone, use their phone. Is it really helping at this point or is it just creating more time wasted on trying to type the thing that you were trying to do in the first place?
1: I think it's it, it's gotten exponentially worse in the last two operating systems and in iOS 13, the newest one that came out like about a month ago or two months ago or so, has gotten much worse. I was, I was trying to type the word me to my wife and it came up next. Right. Because probably I typed N-E instead of M-E and it, and it auto-corrected so fast that I hit send and so I, my, the text of my wife was, the fact that they challenge you on bleep just flummoxes next. Right. Yeah. And, and like, and I, it, it is, and and and, and you make it. You make the point of like you go in, you fix the settings. You shouldn't have to. Is the point? The point of something like autocorrect should be I don't have to go in and monkey with a bunch of settings and a bunch of dictionaries. It should, ideally, it should be that predictive stuff, like you said, like 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 predictive, but in a good way, where you type something like we have friends who uh, we merged their last names into one, and it learned that, and so now it doesn't try to correct off of it, it'll correct to it, and like you know the. Uh, the, the canonical example of this is how many times have you typed the word duck or, or meant to type the word duck? Never. But that's what the autocorrect corrects the F word to or something along those lines. It has. It, it's just gotten, it's, it's taken something that is good and kind of helps you text faster and not have to worry about, you know, especially on the, on the little keyboard, you know, going back and deleting and right. making sure it's spelled right. But now it, it's just turned it into a comedy of errors, really.
0: I mean, the whole idea was, can I get really good at typing on my phone? And, mm-hmm. you know, being good at something often means being able to do it quickly. And you want to be able to right. type quickly. I would love just the the ability to rearrange my keyboard because my biggest issue is hitting the space bar, which – I think is a big problem with a lot of these autocorrect issues, because if it thinks that you've partially correct, like partially typed a word and then you're moving on, it's going to try to correct it, which ends up compounding the issue. And then if you're, if you're a speed demon where you're like, I'm going to type this up and then hit the send button, because I'm having a, trying to have a synchronous communication with another person, it just Mm -hmm. compounds it even further. It is just, again, it, it, I feel like this goes back to our algorithm discussion from earlier on where it's like, well, that's what the algorithm is telling autocorrect to do. And I know that's not exactly what's going on here, but it's this idea that here's this computer program that's supposed to be making things better, and it's actually making things worse. And there's people – I don't know. Is it, is it that there are people that are just invested in this is how autocorrect needs to be uh, at Apple or, or at whatever software subsidiary is is making their autocorrect function? I, I, I'm not sure. But – this is this is how revolutions start. Like people getting really angry about one thing that is relatively inconsequential, but it ends up toppling a lot of dominoes. Like this is the falling down theory of of uh, of revolution.
1: I, I like the idea that we're basically taking down late stage capitalism through autocorrect. Like well, I think that you know that's pretty good. Is it late stage? <laughs> ca-
0: is it late stage capitalism, or is it simply people being stubborn? That's that's always the that's the thing I constantly come back to. Is it like we we attribute all of these ills of society to late stage capitalism? There's a great podcast series I would advise everybody to listen to. It actually applies to a lot of what we've talked about here. It's called Against the Rules. It's a podcast <laughs> oh. series by Michael Lewis, the guy that wrote The Big Short yeah. and Moneyball, and. It's like it's this multi-episode arc where it talks about the decline of the referee, which is why I used the term referee earlier, and and of the neutral arbiter in American society and what's contributing to it. And you know, one of the things that he talks about in this podcast series is the idea of, you know, places like Moody's and Standard and & Poor's, like these the idea of ratings companies um mm-hmm. being independent arbiters of whether a bond is is a good investment or not a good investment. And the problem that these supposedly independent referees are essentially bought and paid for by the companies that they are supposed to be rating, but everybody's happy with that because then nobody can be held liable or held to blame if there's a problem. And I kind of feel like that—like that's not a—that's not a capitalism issue as much as it's a nobody wants to have the finger pointed at them and said you're wrong sort of thing, which is a much more base human emotion. Uh, mm-hmm. so I don't know it's there's there's some interesting things uh, obviously it gets folded into the way that we do economics but um it's more of a flaw in the original operating system of humanity than anything else I got to be honest I don't know what late stage capitalism means yeah, I
1: and it makes me sound really smart when I say it but I have no idea what that means
0: It is the buzziest of of uh, buzzwords and totally. uh, I think if we if we all had to take a quiz where we had to write an essay about what late stage capitalism was it would
1: be just right now and hand it in. and Hope you get a professor who is impressed by your bravery and gives you an A.
0: They would take our podcast away. They probably would. Oh. Anyway, yeah. They, <laughs> actually, they can't do that because we own the means of production. <laughs> uh, anyway, let's wrap things up. Any final thoughts, Brian?
1: I got nothing. No, we'll we'll uh, have show notes for this up uh, in your pod player of choice and also at the uh, flip side link at sportsmediaguy.com. We will be back
0: at some point, probably before Thanksgiving, because we have free time during that time, or at least allegedly we do. But right. uh, we'll be chatting more about things coming up and going on in sports and media and politics and everything else. For Brian, I'm Galen. This is the, uh, the podcast you've come to know and love. We'll catch you on the flip side. So, all, everybody.